Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. Mate, this is just impossible. Too many people were confused. Uh, You bet you are. Uh, You bet I am. I have always believed in miracles. That's not a policy. Not now, not ever. I mean... (laughs) These comments are completely inappropriate. I'm sure she's right. But I ain't spending any time on it. How pathetic. You're a classic space invader. Disgusting, mud-sucking creatures. You should be ashamed of yourselves. Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Taste of democracy, very good. Welcome to this Democracy Sausage Extra. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University's Australian Studies Institute. And this, as I say, is Democracy Sausage Extra. The normal podcast will be coming out uh, as usual at the start of next week. It may be a day late or it may come out on Easter Monday. Let's face it, uh, there's not much else that most of us will be doing given that uh, the government's been very clear about no one taking holidays. So we're all at home anyway. But today we'll be talking obviously about uh, the corona crisis which is dominating the world and uh, various dimensions of that and to do that we have a couple of excellent guests from London. Sophia Gaston is Director of the British Foreign Policy Group, a a very salubrious think tank in the UK and she joins us. Hello there Sophia. Hello. And Elizabeth Ames is the National Director of the Britain Australian Society. She's also a former DFAT official. She's worked around Europe, uh, comes from Australia and and uh, is uh, also joining us from London. How are you, Elizabeth? I'm very well, thanks, Mark. As I said uh, when we talked about this, I'm a long-time listener, first-time caller. <laughs> I like to hear it. So it's a very dire situation there where both of you are in London. Of course, it is in many places around the world. But, uh, uh, you know, one of the biggest stories that's running at the moment, of course, is that uh, your prime minister, or at least Britain's prime minister, Boris Johnson, is in uh, intensive care uh, in the uh, in a hospital in London. Uh, any particular late developments that we know of there? I think um, it's important. To, to note that we heard from the Chancellor today, Rishi Sunak, who's been really on the forefront of um, the briefings around this crisis, and I'm sure we'll get on to the economic developments. Um, and he, I think they've been really keen to reassure the public. It's obviously a very worrying development. Um, the latest news is that the Prime Minister is sitting up in intensive care and still hasn't been intubated, which means that he's breathing with oxygen assistance but he hasn't had to be sedated so he's still conscious and as far as we know he's breathing with that assistance but he hasn't needed to have um, a a tube put down his throat to really force his lungs to take in the oxygen which is obviously good news for him and and for his loved ones and particularly for his fiancee Carrie who's seven months pregnant um, and has had a suspected case of it herself so I think worrying times for, for them and their families. Yes, indeed. When you say has had a suspected case of it, has that been resolved uh, in the positive for her or is that still unknown? 
she tweeted that she thought she'd had it um, and she was out the other side and that she was feeling a lot better. And then she also tweeted some excellent advice from the Royal College of Obstetricians and Gynaecologists for pregnant women um, who think they might have had it. But as might have been reported in the Australian press, the UK has really been behind the curve in terms of testing. And testing is really now limited to people who are in hospital and quite severely unwell and is just starting to be rolled out to frontline NHS workers. So for those people who think they've got a case of it but are able to stay at home and recover, there are no tests available and so you don't actually know if you really have had it until some of these antibody tests that have been spruiked come online. Yeah, just staying with uh, Boris Johnson for a moment, um, it, it, looking at the, 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 uh, some of the British coverage uh, from Australia, uh, it's been my sense that uh, the government's really been rocked by uh, what's happened to the Prime Minister, um, Dominic Raab, the Foreign Secretary who has been deputised to take over. I mean, that in itself is kind of interesting because um, I must say it, it, it sort of highlights the, the fact that there isn't a a deputy prime minister as such as we have in Australia um, who automatically sort of steps up whenever the prime minister is is abroad or, or on holidays, uh, that kind of thing. And, and there seemed to be this sort of real kind of sense of, of, um, of shock and a bit of uh, almost like improvisation as, as Dominic Raab was forced to step up, having been deputised by the ill prime minister to take up some functions. Is that is that the the feeling that uh, you had over there as well? I mean, I think it's an incredibly strange and difficult time to have the prime minister in intensive care, and I'm certain that Downing Street did all they could to muddle through and keep the show on the road until it was impossible to go on. The reality is, it's not just the prime minister who's fallen ill with this. A large number of staff at the heart of government have all been struck down. The constitution over here, of course, is rather murky on this. We don't actually have a clear path forward if he's not able to recover quickly. Um, Dominic Raab, as you said, has has been appointed to deputise. Um, but really, in terms of the day-to-day decision-making, that's actually being led by cabinet consensus. And Dominic Raab, of course, is not taking the meetings with the Queen that the Prime Minister hosts on a regular basis. So we're in a sort of transition period where everyone's just looking with great hope to St. Thomas's and hoping that um, the Prime Minister can be uh, pulling through this rather quickly. Um, I think certainly, though, there will be some who look at the Prime Minister's incapacitation as evidence that the government itself did not take this threat seriously enough at an early stage. And I think that that is going to be difficult to manage on the other side of this. I was going to say, as, as Sophia says, you know, the, the UK constitution is is a muddle. And I think often that flexibility is what enables the UK to fudge and, and get through some of these quite complex questions. But in a system where there is no clear deputy and there's there's no clear decision making, then you do have these questions asked. And I think it's important to note that civil servants in the UK have a lot more power than they do in Australia still. So most ministers will only have one or two private advisors and all of the rest of their advisors and their staff, and in fact, their chiefs of staff, will all have come out of the civil service. So there's a lot of pressure as well being placed on Mark Sedwell, who's the head of the UK civil service, and who is himself actually a former, uh, they call him a securocrat. So he had experience with the Foreign Office. There's some hint that he was with MI5 and MI6. He's the national security advisor. And so 
a lot is being placed on his shoulders as the head of the civil service to really advise the cabinet and advise Dominic Raab on the best way forward, which I think is quite different to to what would happen in the Australian system if you saw the Prime Minister incapacitated in the same way. Yeah, that's a really fascinating point, particularly the one you make about uh, the the different uh, culture of uh, private officers versus the public service. I mean, I think um, I've I've made this comment before in in columns, but the, uh, the growth of the private ministerial office in Australia has, I think, um, not served politics well and it hasn't particularly served the public service well either. Um, and we've seen a number of different uh, negative outcomes from that, not not least being that I think the public service has been diminished in its relative power and independence uh, in, in government policy and ideas evaluation uh, from, from, uh, from years uh, past. Um, but going back to uh, Johnson for a moment and just sticking with this idea about... Um, uh, you know how how the government has performed, whether it took it seriously. What's the feeling? Uh, is there a sense of uh, um, I wouldn't say Schadenfreude because I, what I do get is a strong sense that there is right across the community a very fervent hope that uh, Boris Johnson prevails in, uh, in in his battle with this illness and and does so as soon as possible. Uh, but is there any um, sense of um, uh, kind of umbrage about the, the, you know, his attitude when he, for example, bragged about uh, having shaken the hands of as many people as he could when he visited a hospital, including uh, in his contact with uh, with COVID patients. Uh, either one of you can take that question. Well, I think we have to look at um, the attitudes towards uh, Johnson and his government's handling of the crisis itself overall. And I mean, really, this pandemic is a test of national institutions. It's a test of social trust um, and also of political leadership. And of course, it's, it's important to remember where we were at the beginning of this. I mean, actually, the moment we came into this crisis, um, Johnson and his team were effectively, to some degree, at least uh, being uh, driven by his uh, chief advisor, Dominic Cummings, um, they were at war with the civil service to some degree. Um, and in the UK, of course, here, I think, you know, the Johnson government is forced to abandon its populist rhetoric um, quite early on. It was finally uh, what put an end to its sort of ongoing campaigning position. It had to switch into governance mode and then swing really quickly into crisis mode. And I think that process itself did cost us some time which I think is obviously unacceptable. And I think that's something that um, will come back to bite in the end. But I do think the actions we've seen from them since on the whole, the sort of careful and thoughtful planning that's gone into the economic support packages, support for charities just announced today, the quite delicate balance they've struck with the lockdown. I think these things have been impressive and broadly at a degree of scale and reach to address the sort of nature of the challenge. But, and, you know, I think there are some questions about what happens in the long run. I mean, I, I, it's difficult to imagine that we will go back to this kind of populist language of the past, this sort of facetious baiting of the civil service and the BBC, uh, not least of all because I'm sure the government will be wanting to eke out any possible ounce of national unity that can be inspired by this because, of course, the reality is the country's been through a pretty traumatic four years and we did enter this crisis exhausted and socially polarized. Um, I think what's clear is that there will be an inquiry 
Um, we sort of, that's almost a given at this point. I think the press has been very quick to pursue and hold the government to account on its apparent failures in the pandemic. And I think we've, as we've mentioned, one of the biggest failures has been on testing. Um, the other has been on the supply of um protective equipment to frontline staff. We were really so off the mark, that's clear. And I think at the point at which both of these became a government priority, the global competition for equipment and testing chemicals and so on had just become too acute. So I think that we're likely to be going into an inquiry. There was an interesting um, Reuters piece out today, actually, which, um, which featured interviews and a lot of kind of analysis of uh, speaking to medical professionals and some of the top government advisors in this about what actually happened in those early days and weeks, because there is this sense that there was a lost fortnight. Um, and it's starting to become clear that not only was the government unsure of the path to go down, actually the medical community themselves were unclear. So I think there's going to be a lot of finger pointing on the other side. To go back to your question specifically about Boris Johnson, I think one of the things that's really been picked up on the reporting here and is is quite evident from the way he likes to present himself and the type of politician he is, is it's really in his nature to look on the sunny side of things. And so he was very keen, and and I read that Reuters piece too, Sophia, I agree, I think it's very, very prescient. Um, He was really keen to have positive news in this in this pandemic and he didn't really want to panic himself or panic the community and so things like going to the hospital you actually saw that in the Italian circumstance I don't know if you remember right at the beginning when it was first affecting the north of Italy all of the Italian politicians took the train up from Rome and walked around Milan saying you know Milan is still open you can still visit Milan Milan fashion week went ahead despite the beginnings of of the pandemic and so it's not a mistake that's unique to Boris Johnson or the Brits, but I do agree with Sophia that there is a sense that we didn't necessarily take that two-week head start that we'd had from the Italian experience and the Italian example, and there was a real sense that a lot of the planning and a, and a lot of the response in the UK was being driven by this thing called the Nudge Unit, otherwise known as the Behavioural Insights Team, which is this semi-private, semi-public group of behavioural economists, and they're not, of course, pandemic specialists or health specialists. And they were really keen to emphasise what they thought the British public reaction to lockdown would be, rather than looking at what medical best practice would advise. And so you had them advising go slow on a lockdown because people wouldn't accept it. And in the end, you had almost a bit like you've had in Australia as well, you actually had the public sort of begging for the pubs to be shut and begging for the restaurants to be shut because they knew it was coming and they didn't understand why the government wasn't doing it quicker. Yeah, it's really fascinating. Uh, you, you could probably say that uh, very few governments around the world have have really fully embraced what they eventually needed to do from the beginning. There's, it's almost like there's been a process. Uh, you know, we often hear about the stages of grief. There, there, there seem to have been sort of psychological stages, even for policymakers and for perhaps even medical authorities, in coming to grips with just how big and and uh, you know challenging this threat was and you can kind of when you look back at the statements that were made the kind of incrementalism that characterized some of the early moves um 
That seems to be common to governments all around the world, perhaps with the exception of a few of the, uh, you know, Asian countries like Singapore and Korea, countries that have actually had actually dealt uh, with the SARS crisis before and perhaps uh, had a uh, already a, you know like a pre-existing understanding of uh, of how these things might go. Uh, Elizabeth, what's your sense of the difference though between um the way it's it's been handled in Britain and the way it's been handled in Australia to the extent that you, you know, understand both of those? Yeah, I I mean, I in some respects I think it's quite similar in that it was sort of incremental. The schools took longer to close than most people were expecting. Um, students in the UK have now been told, certainly students facing their final exams have now been told that they will not sit those, that they will get a combined mark from their teachers and their practice exams. And so it's expected that schools here, for example, won't go back until September, which would be the new school year, of course, after the British summer. So both countries have had quite incremental approaches. I think one of the real challenges in the UK context has been obviously we're coming out of winter here and so we've actually had a spurt of lovely weather over the last week and a lot of people in Britain particularly in London don't have any outdoor space and so parks and public spaces are really spaces of recreation in the UK in a way that they're not relied on quite as much in Australia where more people are lucky enough to have the space to have have a garden or a balcony. And so one of the real challenges in the UK context has been balancing that need for people to spend some time outside the health house for, for health reasons and, and mental health reasons with the need to have that social distancing and, and making sure that people are really understanding the restrictions there. I think in terms of the public response, certainly the, the UK public have been right behind the NHS. You know, I remember an Australian journalist who moved over here to cover the UK last year, just before the general election, called me up one day um, and said, mate, I don't get it. Why are they all so obsessed with the NHS? Uh, and there is a real <laughs> sense that the NHS is much more of a sacred cow here than, say, Medicare and healthcare is in Australia. And so there's been this huge focus on the medical first responders here. Um, and I'm not sure that I haven't seen as much of that in Australia, but I think that's because Australians tend to think of their healthcare as something that, you know, their GP or their local hospital or their private hospital provides. And so there's not quite the same sense of community kind of backing for those, for the a sort of totemic healthcare response in the same way that you've had here. Yeah, that's really fascinating. Let's take a break, and when we come back, uh, we'll look uh, a bit more at this issue, of course, and and also at changes on the other side of politics in Britain. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, 
Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Welcome back. Now, just before the break, Elizabeth Ames was talking about uh, the uh, health system, the NHS in the UK, and uh, the, the way that is perceived by, by Britons. Um, it's an interesting point, actually, because, of course, it was a, a big factor in, in the election there, and Medicare is a, a big factor in, in elections in Australia, but it's a, perhaps uh, something that uh, both sides, or certainly the, the conservative side for a long time now, has tried to neutralise as an issue, making sure that it is seen as a big supporter of Medicare. Uh, thinking about politics, and of course the corona crisis has in some ways obliterated the normal divisions in politics as we see uh, both sides uh, you know, looking to the national interest. But there have been some big changes in the UK. We've uh, had finally, after a long and unproductive period, the end of Corbynism, the end of Jeremy Corbyn and his replacement with uh, a new leader, Keir Starmer. Um, Sophia, what sort of uh, Labour leader is he likely to be? Well, I think it's important first to note that he is Sir Keir Starmer, which is, um, you know, slightly bizarre. Sir that, Keir, indeed. Uh, <laughs> slightly bizarre that uh, in the 21st century we've ended up, and after a contest that was heavily dominated by women, we have ended up with another male um uh, leader and and a sort of knight of the realm. So, um, but here we are, and I, I think most people, frankly, um, in Westminster, are delighted to see the end of the Corbyn era. And I think that it's strange. There's a sort of um, kind of Soviet era element to the mood. Uh, the sense of sort of statues being pulled down in squares. Um, I think this is partly because, of course, Corbyn had created this sort of mad cult of leadership and. There was this really ruthless element to the ideological takeover that he and his apparatchiks had enacted on the Labour Party. Um, the big outcome of all of this, of course, is that for the first time in five years, and some may say 10 years, uh, we have a functioning opposition able to hold the government to account. And whether you're a Labour or Tory voter, I think anyone who cares about democracy in this country would say that's a good thing. There's been this very, very miserable symbiotic relationship to a you know corbyn led labor party taking the party in this very strange and sometimes rather unsavory direction um and then this sort of weak divided increasingly ideological conservative party um which you know has now got its own new leader we've got had a general election so a sort of fresh start we're now in, plunged into this crisis. As you say, it's now a sort of time of um, kind of consensus politics. Um, but I think uh, Starmer's election is is interesting, um, not least of all because his shadow cabinet has been so carefully constructed to span just about every region in the UK. There's quite a few prominent women. Women have pretty much all the big roles, so shadow chancellor, shadow home secretary, etc., shadow foreign secretary. Um, sorry, Shadow Foreign Secretary. Um, so, you know, many the biggest posts um, and almost every ideological faction is also represented. So it's a real unity cabinet. And I think this is what Keir is all about. Um, he's not saying let's go back to 
the Blair era or really even the Brown era. This is something new. He is of the softer left um, and he's clearly trying to govern from the heart of the membership and the voting base. He's also, of course, making big song and dance of the fact that he's going to work constructively with the government at this time. I think he's striking the right tone there. Um, he knows, of course, that there is going to be a big inquiry and plenty of opportunity to hold the government to account on coronavirus down the track. The big reality check of all of this, of course, though, is that the pathway to power is incredibly difficult for the Labour Party. They were absolutely hammered at the general election in December, and they would now have to win an absolutely extraordinary landslide to turn that around. Elizabeth, do you think the uh, the, the the voters within the Labour Party's uh, election constituency, that is the because it was a done by um, uh, membership vote, um, did they get the decision right in your estimation? I mean, given uh, as Sophia makes the point, there were a, a number of very prominent women who uh, put their names forward, uh, but uh, once again we ended up with a bloke. Have they got the decision right in terms of the best interests of uh, the British Labor Party? I think you know it. Obviously, one of the candidates um, who was who was running was very much uh, one of the female candidates who was running was very much seen as Corbyn's protege, and I think for a lot of long-term Labour Party members, they just wanted a clean break with that error. Um, Lisa Nandy, who also ran, um, I think wasn't as well known in in the party, didn't have the track record that Sir Keir obviously had both as Director of Public Prosecutions and then when he was in Parliament and Shadow Brexit Secretary. So Sir Keir definitely had the biggest base in the party in terms of people knowing who he was. He had a track record of being very forensic. He's obviously a former barrister himself. And so people knew that they could rely on him to prosecute a really fair and really forensic public case. And I think there was a sense within the Labour Party, but also I agree with with Sophia within the sort of broader British electorate, um, that they just wanted someone who could get on with things, who would bring the party back towards the centre ground of British politics, which is, of course, where elections are won in this country in the same way that it's where they're won in Australia, um, and would really put to bed a lot of the unnecessary battles that have been fought under Corbynism. So one of the really striking things that Sir Keir did in his first day was publish an open letter talking about how he was going to deal with the anti-Semitism allegations that have been roiling the Labour Party over the last two years. He then held I suspect they were meant to be face-to-face, but these days we do everything on Zoom. So he had a Zoom uh, meeting with some of the really senior leaders of the Jewish community here in the UK and set forward uh, a plan for how he was going to deal with the allegations that had rocked the Labour Party, but also build a constructive path forward. So I think from that perspective, he sort of said all the right things, done all the right things. People in the Labour Party wanted a leader who would get on and sort of be the grown-up in the room, and I think Sophia is already proving them right. What What is the scale of that challenge, Sophia? You were You were saying that it would take a uh, an, an absolute landslide. Um, I guess there's there's um, it, it's it's an unsavoury thing to say, but there's the, the the prime minister is in intensive care at the moment, so um, without uh, without fear of exaggeration, it's a very grave situation uh, that the government faces that could therefore significantly change the character of the current government. Um, we, we're going to see a period of constructive uh, bipartisanship, as uh, Keir Starmer has made quite clear. Uh, but as you say, after that, there's going to be 
once we all get to the other side of this all around the world, then there's going to be a lot of uh, forensic examination of the performance of governments, the decisions that were taken, whether evidence uh, or, or early warnings were acted on and so forth. Um, is it uh, – that's a lot of um, imponder, imponderables uh, piled up on each other, I know, but is it possible that uh, Labor can rebuild its position and be competitive uh, at the next election? I think if uh, we're, we're sort of battle-weary after four, four years of absolute chaos um, and dysfunction here, so absolutely nothing is impossible um, – but, I mean, the scale of the challenge is huge. The Labour Party lost 60 seats at this election. And some of those seats, I mean, there was this sense of, you know, certainly in the aftermath of the election, this idea that um, those seats have been lent to the Conservative Party, um, that they're somehow fragile. But if you look at the sort of underlying trends, um, in those areas, and particularly these are areas, um, it's it's often referred to as the red wall. Um, it, it is now a sort of blue wall. Um, in fact, the whole country really is a blue wall. Um, the sweep was so immense, but I think the the situation with those particular seats, it was actually more a case of it was extraordinary that they'd hung on to Labour for so long because what's happened in the Labour Party is very over here is very similar to what's happened to Labour Party in Australia and and the, and the social democratic parties in, in most other Western democracies. It's been this growing chasm, potentially unreconcilable now between their kind of old traditional working class base um, and their kind of cosmopolitan, urbane base. And what's really happened in the Labour Party under Corbyn is an acceleration of trends that are much deeper than just this one election. Um, so I think actually, you know, Boris Johnson in his few months of premiership before this crisis um, besieged the nation uh, had been making very clear that his priority was on delivering for those people and securing those votes. And certainly the strategic intent within the Conservative Party is to garner a, an unlosable majority, that they become the natural party by electoral geometry, um, the natural party of government. So I think it would be ab it would take something really extraordinary um, for Johnson to lose that trust that's been placed in him. I think th the inquiry that will come out of this will be a wonderful opportunity for Keir and probably his first opportunity to really step up and, um, and you know, I guess do the best he can to find avenues. And, you know, I think what's very clear about this pandemic here, and, and Elizabeth alluded to some of this earlier, is that it is being experienced in a very asymmetrical way. It, there is this kind of illusion of togetherness because absolutely everybody is being inconvenienced in some way, but there are people who are disproportionately vulnerable to its impacts and also having a much worse experience along the way. So on the other side of this, this question of inequality, and I mean, there's even bigger, more profound questions that the government's going to have to get to, and, and Britain is not alone in this. You know, why is it unacceptable 
for people to live in abject poverty, economic insecurity, um, you know, to to suffer at the hands of domestic violence and so on during a pandemic, but it's somehow acceptable on a normal given day. So I think that is the really profound question that this government and others are going to have to um, ask themselves when we all get through this. Yes, that's a really fascinating point, Sophia. The Financial Times had a very interesting editorial about this recently where it made the point that um, uh, this pandemic emergency has exposed a number of uh, frailties and inequalities in our society um, that uh, perhaps... Um, you know, exist, but for which we just seem to have, a, a, you know, a blithe acceptance normally. And we've seen governments move, uh, as you say, Sophia, we've seen them move to uh, address some of these things when, uh, when they've suddenly become acute in front of mind. But, um, but that they are pre-existing conditions. In Australia, for example, um, uh, as, as, uh, has been done in Britain, we've moved to, um, direct subsidy of wages and there's been a doubling of the unemployment benefit. Uh, the unemployment benefit in Australia, as, as you would both know, has long been the subject of, uh, complaint by a broad range of, uh, of interests, uh, market economists, employer groups, welfare groups, uh, just about everyone really has uh, had a view about increasing the, the dole, as it's called here. But governments have been unmoved by it. In fact, both sides of politics went to the last election without committing to increasing it. But suddenly we've had a number of people uh, thrown onto the unemployment uh, lines and government has decided that $40 a day is unacceptable and has doubled that. So... It, yeah, it's really quite fascinating. What, what's your view about that, Elizabeth? Uh, I mean, I, I think it's fascinating as well. That the implicit underpinning of, of your question, though, is this sort of idea that that there might be an election in the UK soon. And you know, we're all spending a lot more time on Twitter these days. And I saw a tweet the other day that absolutely blew me away, which is that we are actually still inside the initial five-year term of the Cameron government from 2015's election. So bloody hell. <laughs> it's really extraordinary because that election was on the 7th of May 2015 and it was a five-year term. So in the time since that election, we've obviously had the Brexit vote, we've had the May election, and then we've had the Johnson election. So I think it's fair to say that the uh, UK general public is really voted out. And I would not expect to see, you know, barring some really extraordinary circumstances, I wouldn't expect to see any government go back to the polls before it had to. So whilst the Conservative government then have a lot of time, obviously, to, to think about some of these really underpinning issues, and I think that will be a challenge, as Sophia says, you know, the lack of effective opposition has really enabled um, some parts of the Conservative Party to become quite ideologue and not really engage with the, the broader issues that are facing British society. And those questions, of course, will become more acute in the event that the hard Brexit that is being pursued by the government is official government policy goes ahead. So the Labour Party will have a long time to build its fortunes back up and, and to think about how it wants to address those questions. Um, but the Conservative Party also has, I think, quite a complicated road ahead to thread the needle of we need to come back towards something that looks like fiscal responsibility once all of this is over. But it's very hard to take away things that have been granted to people. And, and as Sophia says, I think it poses some really basic questions about what do we stand for as a society and what do we want to spend our money on and who do we think is worth protecting and why? 
Yes, well, that's a really fascinating challenge in itself because we're going to see a rather unfortunate confluence of potentially this new consciousness about, uh, you know, who has been left behind and who does the important work and how much they're paid for it and those sorts of things at the same time as uh, there is a, a fiscally quite extreme uh, hangover from all of the spending during the, the peak of this crisis. So governments presumably are going to be looking to repair the national balance sheets right at the same time as um, as voters are thinking, well, we actually think that in the case of Australia, for example, we actually think that free childcare or, or, or something very close to free childcare is, you know, is, is a basic entitlement, um, and that the unemployment benefit should actually be a, an amount of money that people can actually live on. Um, so yes, it's, it's an interesting uh, point, Elizabeth. And Johnson and his team, of course, were very much elected at the last election to end austerity. That is, I mean, they've ended austerity with with record speed, uh, not necessarily in the circumstances in which they intended, but no. they really committed to redeveloping regions of the UK that haven't seen government investment for a long time. And balancing, and, and those are really the seats that Sophia was talking about, this sort of red wall of Labour seats through the Midlands and the North that fell to Tory candidates at the last election, and balancing the needs of those seats and the desperate need for investment in some of those areas with the quite pressing budgetary conditions is going to be uh, a huge challenge. And Elizabeth, just finally, I mean, it seems to me, you know, the question uh, going back to, uh, you know, Boris Johnson and the way this unique crisis has unfolded, particularly in Britain, it's it's extraordinary, really, to think that the Prime Minister, uh, the most senior leader in the world, incidentally, to, uh, to have been directly affected by this virus, has, uh, you know, found himself in intensive care. And indeed, the, uh, the heir apparent, Prince Charles, uh, to the throne, uh, was also diagnosed with corona crisis. How, how, did, how did this happen? Is it, were they just too cavalier about it? Well, I, I was actually at the uh, the famous bushfire fundraiser dinner with Prince Charles on the 12th of March, which is the night they re- they assure us all the night before he became infectious. Um, and, and I believe photos, photos of me and my partner circulated wildly in the uh, Australian and British press meeting Prince Charles, which was not how I intended to make uh, my debut on the Channel 7 News. But... Um, it is, It is. I think, indicative of how much more widely this virus has spread in the UK than has been acknowledged. Um, and as we talked about at the top, there's not been anywhere near enough tests. So the sense of the scope and the scale of the infection in the UK is really hard to determine. But the fact that so many senior people came down with the virus and all came down with it in the same period suggests that it was circulating quite freely Um in London in those sort of couple of weeks leading up to the middle of March. Um, but I think that, you know, the, the British public is obviously very worried about Boris Johnson, but they are all, I think, incredibly worried about Her Majesty the Queen. And my favourite um, piece of information that I heard this week was obviously the Queen put out her message on the BBC, which I'm sure was seen in Australia as well. It was a really wonderful and, and inspiring message and I think helped a lot of people feel as though there was someone with their hand uh, on the rudder of the country but that um, she's obviously in isolation at Windsor with her husband uh, and with a very small staff who are keeping her as safe as possible. I'm told that the BBC cameraman who went in to film that particular piece had to wear a full hazmat suit 
uh, and was not allowed within two metres of the Queen while she was sitting at her desk. So they are really taking all measures possible to make sure that, that she stays as healthy as possible through this. Yes, and you're right. It was a, uh, a quite a remarkable statement. She is the uh, the the only world leader who has adult memories of World War Two, and there were some World War II, World War Two um, references or um, you know analogies drawn uh, by her in that address. And it was seen in Australia, and I think even even Republicans would say that it was a message of uh, of great statesmanship and leadership. Um, at this time, and 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 a lot of people did take some uh, some moral comfort from it, uh, and it's also interesting to note that uh, it was while that speech was being recorded that Boris Johnson was being taken to hospital. So, uh, you know, very dramatic uh, uh, circumstances uh, facing Britain at that at that moment. Uh, Elizabeth Ames and Sophia Gaston, uh, it's been uh, terrific talking to you. Thanks, Elizabeth, for uh, finishing on the anecdote about the Queen. Very, very interesting. Thanks, Mark. It was great to chat. And thank you also to Sophia Gaston. Thanks for having me. And we will uh, be back with Democracy Sausage, as I said at the top of the program, uh, early next week, probably on Monday or it may be as late as Tuesday, uh, depending on uh, how long it takes to uh, uh, to uh, do the recording and, uh, and what's necessary afterwards. But uh, it'll be uh, Democracy Sausage next week. And we have Tim Costello and Virginia Hausegger talking about uh, different aspects of this crisis facing the world. So until then, bye for now. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.